Good morning. I think it was the week before Easter. Ready or not. So get your, get your Bibles with me this morning. We're going to do something a little different. Matter of fact, the, for the next some seven, eight weeks or so, our messages are going to be a little bit, a little bit different beginning today. Um, this week and next week, I'm going to be looking at what we would call, if you've ever been to class or taken any courses, you know, I got a taste of this, just a, a general survey of the cross. And uh, we're going to look at both the power and the picture, uh, the power of the cross. We're going to see, and, and just from what I was going to do as the introduction, what I wanted to uh, speak about the cross is a basic assumption. This is the gathered church of God. We gather here precisely because we are Christians. We don't pander to the world in here. We gather because of one reason, the authority of this book. And in just a few weeks, we're going to go through the solas, and we're going to see, you, you bet we're Protestants. And the Scripture alone is what we stand on today by understanding not only the power, but, but what these tables mean, what this water means. We're going to look at this for the next two weeks. We're going to see both the power then we're going to celebrate the picture. And next week, we're going to see the power of the resurrection. And then we're going to celebrate the picture. And uh, so that's what we're going to be doing. And then we're going to jump in and see what the church is supposed to be about after that. And so I've, I've intentionally chosen passages in the beginning from Acts. So if you find Acts, Acts chapter 2, and, and put your, if you got one of those little tabs... I actually have to put my tab underneath my Bible because I'll mess with it while I'm preaching. <laughs> and and, and, the, and, and your real Bibles have two of them, by the way. I got two of them on mine, just saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we're going to end today. So if you, if you do that, you know the book ends of where we are going today. Let, let me pray, and we're just going to jump into it this morning. Lord, we... We are here today, an expression of our faith is not only our presence here this morning, but our open Bibles. We bring our Bibles with us. We open them up in faith to say, Lord, teach me something of you today, something of your plan, something of your sovereign, transcendent glory. Teach me something about myself, about the world that, that I have to live in and our people have to live in. We're fixing to go back into it here in just a few minutes, Lord. But we have gathered into our safe place to hear from you. So speak to us, Lord, about the power of the cross. Bless your people today through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The sevenfold power of the cross. I just chose seven because it's a good biblical word, right, brother? It's a good biblical number. There's plenty of more. I just chose seven. And I want to start as close to the starting point as I know of in Acts 2.23. The cross was God's plan A for our redemption. The cross was God's 
was God's plan A for our redemption. Acts 2, 23. Let's just let God's word speak for itself this morning. We're going to read it. We're going to define it. And we're going to keep moving. Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We know this was Peter's great sermon on the Jewish holiday called Pentecost. Just want you to see, just look at the words. Remember, we, we, are, we are those folks that believe every word is inspired. So what did it mean when they chose this word? These, these two words, definite plan. Definite plan, definite, determined, appointed, assigned, decided. It was definite. Nothing we do is definite. You can make your vacation plans if you want to and watch a hurricane or a sickness come in and ruin all of them. He had a definite plan. It was a plan. That means purpose. It means a series of steps to be carried out to reach a goal. That's what a plan is. It was not only his definite plan. But this Jesus was delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge means to know beforehand. It was the foreknowledge of God. It was God's foreknowledge. The foreknowledge belongs to Him. God is taking knowledge of whom? He is taking knowledge of what? We'll just let what the Bible says speak for itself. This Jesus delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. It was Jesus that he foreknew. Jesus is chosen to carry out the Father's plan of redemption. But not only that, notice what the text says. The cross displays our guiltiness. You crucified him. That's what he's, he's speaking to a mostly Jewish audience there. Fifty days after the cross in the town where Jesus was, was killed. You killed him. Yeah, I know, you, you let the pagans do it, but you're still guilty. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. All sin, so all must bear the guilt of their own sin. In other words, the power of the cross not only reveals God's plan, the power of the cross convicts us all. So if you got Acts 2, just flip over one chapter to Acts 3.15. This is Peter speaking at a different time in the temple complex. Just want you to see this one little part of Acts 3.15. It says, you killed the author of life. The author of life. You killed him. Raises all kinds of questions. Just so we know, just listen to this. You don't have to turn to it. I'm going to put Jesus in every, every place just so we make sure we're clear who we're talking about. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15, says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. And I know that creates this, makes your mind want to explode. Well, if he's God, how did he die? you got to remember, Jesus, as a greater, as God, took on the lesser, which was human. He had two natures. You have one. He has two. 
as it pertained to his humanity, Jesus died. As it pertained to his divinity, death could not hold him. He's God. That's what he's saying. Jesus has not only created life. John says he is the life. He was killed for our sin. That's what he's saying. You killed him. You could say it just as much today as they did back in Pentecost. You killed him. Historically, friends and foe understand this. Something traumatic, bloody, horrid happened that day to Jesus. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life to Jesus Christ our Lord. The cross, the power of the cross reveals a plan. The power of the cross convicts us all, but the power of the cross also identifies something. It identifies the church. Identifies the head of the church. Just flip over now one more chapter, Acts chapter 4, verse 11. Says this This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. Under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. The clearest passage, two realities. Jesus is the rejected one. Prophecy foretold it, and it happened exactly how God's word said it was. Psalms 118 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. He was rejected by the builders. That is, the ones who should have been building the spiritual house was the very ones who rejected him. 1 Peter 2.4 says this, As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We don't need to come into the house of God and to offer false fire to attract the masses. What we need to understand is the very people who should have accepted him, who should have built God's church on him, rejected him, and God built his church anyway. That's what he's saying. He built his church anyway. What is this cornerstone? The cornerstone is the place of honor. It's a place that's supposed to be noticed. It is the orienting reality of the house, of the temple, of the building. Some uh, NIV, I believe it is, calls it the capstone. It's not really getting to the point there. The word is head of the corner. It's the furthest end point. It's it's not only orients that, it is the place where you look at the building. It's where you stamp the plate on there that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's His church. Hebrews 9.15, reading from the New Living Translation. 
says, that is why Jesus is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people. So that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sins that he had committed under the first covenant. He's the head because he's the mediator. And he's the only mediator. There's no other mediator. No saint to pray to. No person to look towards. No priest needed. Jesus is the mediator. And we come to him, we are saved by him, and we never stop coming to him. He is all we have. He is all we need. He is the head of the church. And it is through the cross that provides forgiveness through repentance. Just if you go back to Acts, one more page over. Acts 5.30. The apostles have been arrested here. And this is what they said to their... To their captors. Acts 5.30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. Whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand. As leader and savior. To give repentance to Israel. And forgiveness of sins. The cross reveals our need of repentance. And repentance is a gift from God. Acts 11:17 says repentance is a gift that's given both to Jews and the Gentiles. That's everybody. The cross offers this. It offers a forever forgiveness. Now there's a typo in your notes. It says Luke 2. It should have said Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 47. We're going to begin with verse 45. It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. The travesty of the church Today is that we can go to church week after week and never hear about repentance. And without repentance, nobody gets saved. It is forgiveness through repentance. Repentance is necessary because forgiveness is precious. It is precious. It is a costly gift that flows from a bloody cross that is received by repentance and faith. Forgiveness means pardon. It means to be released from a debt. When you forgive somebody, you release them from something. Forgiveness is freedom. That's why it's so precious. That's why it makes no sense, brothers and sisters, for us to be forgiven of so great a debt and then hold something against somebody else. It is power. The cross, you see, is good news. It's good news. Now let's move out of Acts and move into 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The cross is the good news. And who is it a good news to? I don't write the news, brothers and sisters. We just deliver it. Uh, we believe in the authority of Scripture. Let's receive it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1. Let's look at 20, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seeks wisdom. 
but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Huh. Man. That's sort of depressing, isn't it? Who's going to be saved? That's everybody. Verse 24. The good news. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The cross brings something that we may have not expected when you share the gospel. Pride-infused stumbling. Stumbling because of people's pride. That's what he said. The, the people who should have built the house tripped over it. That's the most religious leaders of their day tripped over it. The Greeks laughed at it. Why do I need a Savior who died? I mean, give me a break. But, do you see it? The cost brings power-infused wisdom. To who? To who? What does the text say? To the called. To the called. What does that word mean? It's a kingly word. Remember the king? We've been talking about the king all through the Psalms. David was the king, looking for the greater king. That's who we're talking about, the greater king. The, to the called. The called means an invitation from someone whose refusal is not an option. That's what it means. Both Jews and Gentiles, there's no distinction in this offering. Who determines who's called? The king does. What do we do? We preach Jesus Christ crucified to everybody. That's what it says. It gives, he promises what? Wisdom. The gospel brings power and wisdom. Let's look at wisdom first. Wisdom is a, a neat word to study because it has this one side of this divinely given insight, but it has another side to it of common sense. So it's divine insight partnered together with common sense. And so there's both this profoundness to God's wisdom, but there's also a very practical side of God's wisdom. It gives you sound judgment. It, it makes you more intelligent. It gives you practical wisdom. It is the center of this is the trust and the fear of the Lord. So I'm just saying, you're talking to somebody who was a machinist all his life, who never read a book other than the Bible, to not, well, a long time now, because I'm getting old, but till I was probably 30. And here's what I can tell you. Some of us need to learn how to learn. Some of us need to learn how to study. Some of you need to quit saying, well, you know, preacher, I just don't read. You need to learn how to read. You want to grow? Learn how to study. Start bringing a pen Every time you read a book, every time you come to church, you need a Bible, the notes, and an ink pen. That's your faith. Learn how to study. Ask God for wisdom. He will give it to you. Study your Bible, and God promises you He will give you wisdom to know how to take that and to do something with it in the life that you're living right now. We need power. That's what it's all about. Power is driving this wisdom. It is supernatural. 
It is the same power we, we have to save us. The same power that God uses to sanctify us is the same power that He uses to equip us. This power has the ability to take an introvert and make him an evangelist. He has the power to take an extrovert and to help them slow down enough to pour their life and not give up on this one person who is broken. Both take something of God, doing something within us. The greatest power God gives any of us is to give us victory over indwelled sin. And this is a promise he gives to his church. I will make you like my son. The cross brings forgiveness and power and wisdom, but foundationally, foundationally, the cross brought a declaration of right standing before God. Right standing. Now flip over. We've got to go to Romans. There's no way around it when we talk about this. Romans is the book. Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 9. Now read this with me. And this is the interactive part of our sermon. Since therefore we now have been justified, how? By his blood, much more we will be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. Verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were what? Reconciled to who? How? By the death of his son. And much more now we are what? Shall we be saved by what? His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through whom? Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have what? Now received reconciliation. Two things, justification and reconciliation. There is both a legal side to this justification and a relational side. First, the legal side. It's, this word means to become legally vindicated as we ourselves are in compliance with God's law. How? Can we be seen as in compliance with God's law when we still sin? Christ in your place. That's how it happens. It comes from the cross. Cross standing in our place, taking our sin upon himself, and giving you his righteousness, his right standing before a holy God. That is the only way. That is the only way that any person on planet earth is reconciled before the holy God. There's no other way. There's no other way. This is what reconciles. You see, the legal brings the relational. The legal has to happen at a point in time to bring the relational that goes on for the rest of our life on into glory. Reconcile to cause to be in the right relationship. By the way, in the language here, it's passive. That means it's happening to us. It's happening to us. is to be restored back to a favorable relationship with someone that has previously been wronged. It is this, and you know this if you've ever experienced it. It is the sweetness of a renewed friendship after a disagreement. The sweetness 
of a renewed after a something that's happened that has torn our relationships where we come back together that's what reconciliation is that's what it feels like it all comes from the cross so why did christ go through all of this on the cross why all these blessings to us well, if you still got Romans 5, it tells you right there in verse 8. It says, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Both we have proved something and God has proven something. We prove that we are sinners. Matter of fact, you see the word, we are still sinners. That word still means without interruption, without change. Our whole life before Christ has proven sin, sin, sin. I'm a sinner and I love it. We are rebellious to the God that we should serve. Sinners, what does that mean? We have broken the divine commands. We have broken it in thought. We have broken it in disposition. We have broken it in motive. And we have broken it in action. We have broken it unintentionally and unintentionally. Even our natural inclination prove that we are sinners. And we love it. It's in that state. It's in that state that God has proven his love for us. You see that word? In the ESV, it shows. Shows his love for us. But the word means to prove by an action. To prove by an action. He proved by his actions. What was his action? It was love. Agape. God's chosen, sacrificial, selfless love. So how does God call us as the church to display such an amazing gift? The Lord's Supper. You ever wonder if you came in here, if you're a guest and you come, you come and you sit notice we have tables set every week. Luke twenty two fourteen says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The cross happened in a context. It was called the Passover, this remembering of God's people that was delivered from Egypt through the sacrifice of a lamb, its blood shed, The cross proves God's love for us by making his own son the Passover lamb, paying for, then removing our sin, restoring us back to himself, not only with complete forgiveness and not only with a declared righteousness, but a forever family. This is a corporate time that we remember our Lord. This is a really good little book. If you have not read it, it's on, our, it's on the book rack out there. It's called Understanding the Lord's Supper. I've also got one on understanding baptism. He says this, By celebrating the Passover with his disciples, Jesus turns friends into family. Jesus is saying that his family are those who receive his sacrifice. Defining the Lord's Supper this way, the Lord's Supper is a church's act of communing with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine and a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his or her commitment to Christ 
and his people, thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world. Now, if you've never heard of the Lord's Supper teaching you all of that, you need to get this little book and you need to read it so that we dare not do what I'm going to talk about next. The God has given us a picture of the cross, and it is a picture that must be taken seriously this morning. And every week we come, what we encounter is you flip over now, if you had marked 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is a flippant con- congregation. And we've preached through 1 Corinthians, if you remember, and you remember some of their issues. But look with me at verse 17. Paul is writing this to the church, to the church in Corinth, when he says in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is, for, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When each of you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. These gathering times, the Lord's Supper, usually accompanied by some kind of a meal, had become very selfish, even pagan. The Lord's Supper had become something more like a bar or a buffet, a place where there was classism and division. And he said, and if you look down at verse 27, there's time. We must stop and examine ourselves. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then... And so eat the bread and drink the cup. You may be coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? It's to come to the table with anything else going on inside of you other than my Jesus who gave his life for me, for his church. This is a communal moment. When the church declares with one voice, with one voice, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we respond in thanks that the work that he has done is a finished work. But there's another way we can come to the tables in an unworthy manner. It is the fact that we are living in an unworthy manner. This is the primary context of the church in Corinth. They're living in a manner unworthy. That's the primary point. And what he is saying is not for you to just sit there with your arms crossed this morning and then go out and not tuck to the table. What he is calling us to do is to repent. The whole point of us as the church, a gathered of the redeemed, is not, as Micah said, that we're perfect. It is that we're all come to the cross at this moment. The first thing we remember is our sin and our need to come to the cross because there's no other way to remove it. But the promise is this in 1 John, written to believers, 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. In other words, when we pray in just a second, we all need to ask for forgiveness for something. It is a picture we must receive and we must remember. We remember and we commune over the body of Christ. To remember means to call something to mind that happened in the past, to bring it into the present and act on it. Call something to mind that happened in the past, to put it, bring it to the present and do something with it. That's what God does when he remembers. He remembers his covenant, brings it up, does something. That's what we're doing every time we celebrate communion. Again, quoting from this little book here. We enjoy and experience afresh and anew the salvation Christ won for us on the cross. It's what Jesus said, that you must feed on my flesh. We feed on his flesh through faith in Christ, communing, fellowshipping, worshiping, enjoying, celebrating. That his body was offered in our place. His righteousness given to us. Forgiveness, adoption, all of those wonderful things is, was mine because of him. This is what we remember when we come to the table. We remember and commune over the blood of Christ. Matthew 26, 27 says, And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. Drink of it, all of you. Verse 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus brought in at the Lord's Supper a new covenant. A new covenant that was better than the old because it was based, it was rooted on a better sacrifice, a finished sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, his own body and his own blood. But not only that, when we come to the table, we look forward to something. We look forward to the coming of Christ. For in Matthew 26, 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters, let us proclaim the Lord's death this morning. We will proclaim his resurrection next week. But let us not skip it over. Let us remember his death Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, For often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is why, brothers and sisters, every time Battleground Community Church gathers, we will remember the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as remembering, we will remember his death defeated our eternal death. His death brings us a present and a forever peace. And his death gives us a future hope. So, brothers and sisters, let us go to the Lord in prayer. And then let us remember that it was his death that brought us life, peace, and hope. Let's pray. Lord, we come now to do what 1 Corinthians 11, your divine, inspired, perfect word to tell us to do. 
to acknowledge first that there is not a person in this room that has not sinned against the God that they love. Sort of puts us all equal there, doesn't it, God? No matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've been through this week, we're all coming to the same place. We're coming to the cross this morning at the first level and saying, Lord, none of us are worthy in and of ourselves to come to the table. And so, Lord, we come in the name of Jesus. And we ask you to forgive us, to reveal these things even in the thoughts and intentions of our heart, down to the motivations of why I am doing the things that I am doing right now. That you would reveal that to us. And through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, we would repent, we would turn and follow you and say you were right. And I am wrong. Forgive me. And thank you, Lord. Thank you, our Father, who because his work is a finished work, because of my sins, past, present, and future are on that tree. It was on that tree that day, Lord, that you will forgive me and you will restore me and you will restore every single individual and you will restore your church back to yourself. Do that work today. There is no more supernatural work than a changed life. So God, change us. We dare not walk away from here the same today because we know the power of what your son did for us at the cross. And so, Lord, we give this time to you. We give this worship to you. We ask you to help us, forgive us. We now, Lord, want to fellowship with each other, to fellowship with you. Our Lord, as we remember, as we give thanks, as we are renewed, as we commit ourselves afresh and anew to follow our Lord in every square corner of our life. Pray this in Jesus' name. And what we are going to do this morning is something different than we do on normal Sundays. What I'm going to ask you to do here as the praise team leads us is to come to the tables. There's tables on both sides to get the bread and the cup. And I want you to hold it this morning. This is different. I want you to hold it this morning. And I'm going to lead us this morning to take the cup together. Okay? So I want you to stand as we sing as you're ready. I want you to come to the tables, get the bread in the cup, hold it, and I'll come right back here in a few minutes. Let's stand and sing. Sweet Jesus Christ, my sin I need. Sweet Jesus Christ, my Clara.
Christ has died in Christ is risen Christ will come again Christ has died in Christ is risen Christ will come again Christ has died in Christ is risen Christ will come again Christ has died in Christ is risen Christ will come again So Paul, after instructing and warning the church on the right way to remember, says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks... He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He goes on to say in verse 25, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. And so now, Lord... Receive our offerings of thanksgiving, of gratefulness, of commitment. Of worship. We are your people. Whom you called by the sovereignty of God into this precious thing called the church thank you for your work among us your power in us thank you that you gave us a promise that one day we will see you face to face one day those who have gone on before us We'll come back with us 
And so we will all forever be with you. So we remember this today. That there is coming an eighth day. A day when there needs no sun. It will never set because your glory will light the place. And so God, we are here and we are waiting. Receive our worship now. In Jesus' name. Amen.